age-activated attention deficit disorder. This is how this insidious disease manifests itself. And the title of this was, I should be on some sort of drug. Um, age-activated ADD. I decided to wash my car. As I started toward the garage, I noticed that there's mail on the hall table. I decided to go through the mail before I washed the car. I lay my car keys down on the table, put the junk mail in the trash can under the table, and notice that the trash can is full, so I decide to put the bills back on the table and take out the trash first. But then I think, since I'm going to be near the mailbox when I take out the trash anyway, I may as well pay the bills first. I take my checkbook off the table and see that there's only one check left. My extra checks are in, the, in my desk in the study, so I go to my desk where I find the can of pop that I've been drinking. I'm going to look for my checks, but first I need to push the pop aside so I don't accidentally knock it over. I see that the pop is getting warm and I decide I should put it in the refrigerator to keep it cold. As I head toward the kitchen with the pop, a vase of flowers on the counter catches my eye. They need to be watered. I set the pop down on the counter and I discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. I decide I better put them back on my desk, but first I'm going to water the flowers. I set the glasses back down on the counter, fill a container with water, and suddenly I spot the TV remote. Someone left it on the kitchen table, and I realized that tonight when we go to watch TV, we'll be looking for the remote, but nobody will remember that it's on the kitchen table, so I decide to put it back in the den where it belongs, but first I'll water the flowers. I splash some water on the flowers, but most of it spills on the floor. So I set the remote back down on the table, get some towels, and wipe up the spill, and then I head down the hall, trying to remember what I was planning to do. At the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm can of pop sitting on the counter, the flowers aren't watered, there's still only one check in my checkbook, I can't find the remote, I can't find my glasses, and I don't remember what I did with the car keys. Age activated ADD. Yeah. Well, I would have wrote it, but I forgot. I started doing it, but I forgot. Um, that's more true than I hate to admit. Oh, boy. Alrighty. Yeah. Uh, we're in First Carnations. <laughs> First Corinthians, uh, chapter one. Uh, not to be a. I guess nowadays, do you say not to be a broken CD? Because you say broken record, and nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> Dating myself. Just a a minute of review. Again, we're talking about First Corinthians. This church. That was found. You know, it's interesting that Jerry mentioned and Irv mentioned the various places in, in, uh, that were in the known world at that time and how they were centers of such idolatry and evil. And I think it was true everywhere. The Corinth was another place like that. And, and it was probably true because there were people around. And man is basically evil. And so this church uh, in Corinth was founded in an evil and affluent city. Paul is writing from Ephesus to address problems in the church that he's been let know. And he Again, we looked at division in the church was the very first thing, dissensions. And last week we were looking at godly versus worldly wisdom. The, the, the first chapter goes into talking about wisdom, the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. And uh, worldly wisdom rejects the message of the cross. It says the preaching of the cross is foolishness, but that preaching means the word of the message. The actual message is foolishness to the world. They, they don't accept it. It says in the scripture, to them that are perishing, and it really means to them that are lost. And, and it's sometimes a little um, unfortunate that it says perishing because it seems like it glosses over the fact that people are lost. There was a man who said, there's only the thickness of your ribs between your soul and hell. Basically, your ribs protecting your, 
protecting your life. He said, that's all that's protecting you, your soul and hell. That is for those who are lost. And uh, to those that are lost, the, the gospel is foolishness. But to those, who, those of us, hopefully, all of us here, hopefully, that are saved, it's the power of God. And, and uh, again, just as a reminder, this letter was written to saved people. So it was written to the Christians in Corinth and to, and to everyone everywhere who calls on the name of Christ. So it's written to Christians. So today we're going to continue looking at the, this, the topic that the Scripture has presented here, God's wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And our purpose is, to, is, is not just to get through 1 Corinthians, because that's what we've decided to do, but to understand the vast difference between the two, between man's wisdom and God's wisdom, and then to ask and, and hopefully try to start answering the question, what difference does that make to me now? Why, 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 do we, why did Paul write this? Why do we need to know about uh, this difference between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God? So that's what we're trying to get, get into. We uh, kind of ended in verse 21 last time. And uh, just for a quick reading of the scripture, just to back up a little, I'm going to start reading at 18 and just read quickly through the end. And then we'll start looking through some of the verses. Uh, so 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross, the message of the cross, is to them that perish, or them that are lost, foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world, by wisdom, knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the ba and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So kind of turning back to where we left off last week, looking in verse 22, where it says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Um, he refers to the Jews and the Greeks. Uh, the Greek, and we'll get into that in a minute, but the, the Greeks are kind of like referring to the Gentiles. And the, and the Jews, of course, here are a religious people. They are actually a religious people that worships the one true God. And yet, the Jews at this time had gotten to a largely a, a ritualistic form of religion. Um, this is, their heart is really away from God. This is where you, God has said of them, you know, their lips are with me, but their heart is far from me. I didn't say that exactly right, but you know the scripture that I'm talking about where he says, you know, these people talk a good story, but their hearts are far from me. That's kind of where they are at this point. 
And uh, the power was really gone out of their religion because it was just a ritual to them now. And it, it, it brought me in remembrance of the scripture in 2 Timothy 3.5 that talks about having a form of godliness but denying the power. This is where the Jews were. And so rather than when Christ comes, rather than look to the scriptures, and they had the scriptures, they had the Old Testament scriptures. And as you know, the Old Testament scriptures speak throughout about the Messiah. I mean, if these people wanted to know whether Jesus was the Messiah, they could have found out. They could have turned to the scriptures. But instead, they wanted to get a sign. They wanted Jesus to give them a sign. And uh, I'm not going to spend a, a long time on it, but I did look through at uh, the, the, all the various verses that uh, where it, throughout scripture where it talks about pe people that are seeking after signs. And most of them, it, this is a bad thing. You can probably think of a, maybe a few examples, but... Throughout, you know, people are wanting a sign from Jesus, and he's saying, you know, this an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Um, and his point always was, you have enough of a sign if you really want to know. Um, he's always he always said to them, you're only going to get the sign of Jonah, and he was referring to the fact that Jesus was going to die, be in the grave for three days, and then be resurrected. And uh, so he said, there's there's enough here if you really want to know. You don't need to have a sign. And uh, just to look at one example, it's kind of interesting. Uh, my wife brought this up the other day when she was reading in chapter Luke, and we, we discussed it for a while in uh, Luke chapter 1. It's, it's maybe not an example that we would normally think of, but uh, in chapter 1 of Luke, we have the, the episodes of Zacharias having the angel visiting him, telling him that he and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And uh, I think it's interesting that... Yeah, I don't know if you have, maybe you've got it all sorted out in your mind, but I often wondered, you know, the angel came to Zacharias and told him something that was, that was a very difficult thing to believe, and he questioned it, and he was punished. And an angel came to Mary and told her something that was very difficult to believe, and she questioned it and was not punished. And I've, I've wondered about that and kind of drawn my own conclusions from that, but uh, looking back at it, uh, if you look in Luke 1, 12, it says, When Zacharias saw the him, the angel, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Now, maybe that's not so bad, because I, as I thought about it, he was a priest and ministering in the, in the holiest of holies, and if an angel showed up, you know, if they messed up in there, they had, to, they had to do things just so. And if they messed up, they could be struck dead. And having an angel show up to you when you're in the holiest of holies, that, that might cause a little consternation. You might wonder, oh, no. Um, uh, so I guess the fact that he feared, because it doesn't say that Mary feared. It says that Mary was very troubled. Um, that's hers is in verse uh, 29. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. But then after the angel gives the message to Zacharias, look down into verse 18, his response. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Zacharias was a priest. They had the scriptures of the Old Testament. Gee, can anybody think of an Old Testament person that's a little bit um, well-known who was past the age of childbearing and an angel came to him and said he was going to have a child and who believed God? And it took, what was it, 13 years, I think, something in that before that child was actually born. Uh, Zacharias should have known about Abraham. Uh, and He should have known about a number of people in the Old Testament who were barren, and yet God opened their womb. People like, uh, we were looking, uh, remembering some of them. 
um, Hannah, who had uh, Sam, uh, Samuel, yeah, I was going to say Samson. And actually, uh, Mrs. Manoah, whatever her name was, Manoah's wife, who had Samson, and um, uh, Rachel, and, and Rebecca, both. I mean, they were barren, and God opened their womb. And so there were a number of people who were barren. The only one that I know of who was actually past the age of childbearing uh, was Abraham, but Abraham's a fairly important figure in, uh, in Judaism, so Zechariah should have known this. And he's saying, whereby shall I know this? In other words, show me, prove it to me. I think he's saying here, give me a sign, prove it to me that this is true. And, uh, and that's why I think Zacharias, my opinion, that's why I think he was punished. He was struck dumb until the baby was born because he was basically saying, I want to see a sign because I don't believe it. And uh, it might be, well, isn't an angel telling you maybe enough of a sign? <laughs> Perhaps. Um, I don't know. Uh, and in Mary's response, if you look, if you turn, well, I don't know if you have to turn a page, but I do. Um, uh, in, in verse 34, it says, Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? It, it just seems like the question is more, I don't, I'm confused. And, and, and it says when she was troubled at his saying, it means she was very troubled and confused. She, it's kind of like, I don't understand. How can this be? Um, and so it's, I think that's an interesting example of somebody seeking after a sign. I don't think that Mary was asking for a sign. She was just saying, I don't understand. Please explain it to me. Um, and it's interesting. I, I've got a, uh, what did I do with it? A quote from Ironsides on, on miracles. He was asked, um, he said the question, some say if you could work miracles today, would it not be wonderful? Talking about seeking after signs and, and wonders. And he says, I do not know that it would. If I had apostolic power and could go through an audience and lay my hands upon some poor cripple and he would leap to his feet well and whole, I fancy I could fill a building and we would have all kinds of cripples coming, but I have never heard of anything like that causing poor sinners to awake and turn to Christ. Even when the apostles could do these things, men turned on them and tried to kill them, as in the case of Paul at Lystra. It is the preaching of the cross that saves. That is what guilty sinners need. I thought, you know, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting thought. Uh, seeking after signs, do signs really turn people to, to the Lord? Um, in general, the seeking after signs in the scripture is bad. Now, you, you may look at, some, you know, there's some examples like um, Gideon, who asked for some signs from God and didn't, you know, God gave him the signs and it didn't seem to, to be any, uh, any punishment there. But in general, references to people seeking after signs are not good things in the scripture. So the Jews, instead of turning to their scriptures and instead of turning to faith, decide to ask for a sign. The Greeks, it says, seek after wisdom. Now the Greeks, the heyday of the Greek culture had happened, like started about 400 years prior to the time of Christ. And so for three centuries, it was an amazing culture. I guess the quote is, they had a brilliance of mind and art that still dazzles mankind. And this is worldly art and wisdom and things. And it went, went on for three centuries. Now, by the time it got to the time of Christ, it was falling off. I mean, their, their, the, the brilliance of the Greek culture was falling off. But they still had in their history the, the philosophers of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and some of these others I don't know, Pericles, 
Anaxagoras, Thales. I'm sure you probably are all reading their material every day. But their, their philosophy, you know, they, they were trying to seek after, you know, what is the meaning? What is the meaning of man? What is God? What is man's purpose? And then, and uh, I have never taken a class in philosophy, and I, and I think I'm very thankful. <laughs> um, it, it was intricate and difficult. I mean, they, they made things very extremely difficult, and they tried to argue from logic. Now, now logic is the science of correct reasoning. It's trying to be able to reason correctly from one point to another point. And they're trying to reason about man's origins and purposes, but this is all done in, in just in man's way, and man's wisdom trying to figure things out. And, and so that's what the Greeks were after. But he goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, he says unto the Jews, that's a stumbling block. You guys have probably all heard of oxymorons, right? These cute little contradictory statements like um, jumbo shrimp. And you put two words together that apparently contradict one another. There's, there's all sorts, there's millions of them out there, like uh, act naturally or a plastic glass. You know, things like that where you put two words together that seem to contradict one another. Well, a crucified Christ was an oxymoron to the Jews. A crucified Messiah was they could not comprehend such a thing because a Messiah is an expected liberator or savior. They're, they were expecting, and, and you can see throughout, when they, even when the disciples asked Christ after he was raised, well, are you going to establish your kingdom now? I mean, it was kind of, are we going to kick the Romans out of here now? It, it was, it, the, the question was, we want to be liberated. We, this is a, uh, a picture of a Messiah, somebody who comes riding on a horse with a sword and liberates you. And the cross... And that was well known in Jewish culture too. The cross was something that spoke of something that was so shameful and so horrible that it should never even be mentioned in public society. Anyone that was crucified was the very lowest. They were looked down upon. It, um, it was much worse in their culture than we would, we would tend to look down on people that would be, you know, go to the gallows or the electric chair or, or die by injection. And you, look, you think of somebody like Timothy McVeigh, who was executed for the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. And, and we kind of looked down on that, but the, the cross was much worse. Uh, one was considered guilty of the, only the people that were guilty of the vilest crimes were killed on the cross. They were considered utterly unfit to live, rejected by men and cursed by God. All right, get the picture? So, crucified Savior. It's like the Jews, they... they their Messiah would never, ever be in that kind of a situation. So it was, it was an oxymoron to them. The Greeks, on the other hand, it was just a foolish message. I've already said that. Uh, thinking that, that we should live, our life should come through someone who died, our being blessed through someone who was made a curse. You know, the Old Testament scripture talks about if you die, if you crucify it on a tree, you're cursed. The person was considered cursed. Our being justified by someone who is condemned, the Greeks were kind of like, oh, this is just, this is idiocy. Like I said, the Greeks tried to argue everything logically, you know, correct reasoning. And, and you may have heard people talk about, you know, accuse Christians of being, you know, you got to check your brains at the door if you're going to be a Christian because, you know, it's foolishness. Uh, you hear that, I've heard that. Um, 
But, you know, logic, the whole concept of logic, it, it depends what you are reasoning from. You know, what, what your premise is to what you're gonna, where you're going to arrive at. So obviously the, the world doesn't accept Christ, doesn't accept the cross, doesn't accept the fact that they're sinners and are lost. So that's a foolish starting point for them. So arguing from there, I and mean, you can argue logically from there to, uh, through the scriptures, but it's complete foolishness to the world. Now, an example of, of this whole thing of, you know, depending upon where you're arguing from, uh, Euclid was a, uh, he was Greek. He was a, a father of geometry. He, he was the man who wrote down a lot of the postulates that they based geometry on. Geometry is a branch of mathematics. Don't worry, there's not going to be a test on this, so you don't have to. Every, when you say mathematics and most people go, and their brain shut down. But um, in any branch of mathematics, you start from certain assumptions. There are certain basic facts that you assume. Some, they call them postulates, axioms and postulates. These are things that we're going to assume these, and then given these, then we just build up a series of logic, a series of, you know, where does this lead me? And Euclid had a, a whole series of postulates, like 11 of them. I don't, not gonna, I don't even remember what all of them were, but uh, w one particular one was if you have a line and you have a point up here that's not on the line, there's only one line that you can draw through that point that's parallel to the first line. Parallel, you know, like railroad tracks, two lines that go on forever and ever and never, they never come together. There's only one line, and that's what Euclid stated. And he stated that as a postulate. He thought that was obvious. Um, as time went on, people looked at that and they said, well, what if we assume something different? What if we said, if we have a line here and a point up here, there are no lines parallel. In other words, every line that we draw through here will eventually intersect this line. Well, what if we assume that? Where would that lead us? So they started with all the same postures, but changed that one, and then apply logic and see, well, where does that lead us? Or I've got a line here, and I've got this point here, and there's infinitely many lines I can draw through there that are parallel to the first line. Those are a couple of things that don't seem to make sense, but men have looked at them and said, well, Let's leave everything else the same and see where we get by applying logic. And you know, they've come up with different areas of geometry. These are called non-Euclidean geometry because they changed some of Euclid's postulates. And they've arrived at some very interesting, if you like math, some very interesting things. And there are actually applications in the real world for all three of these kinds of geometry that are applied to you know, practical things. I, I don't know what they are. I'm just taking their word for it that there are ap applications of all these things. So my point of the whole thing is, depending upon where you start, you apply, you can argue logically and get somewhere, but if you don't agree with what the premise is, then you're gonna reject the whole thing. And that's the, you know, that's the basic, the whole idea of the, the Greeks, they're trying, they're thinking logic all the time, and these Christians are foolish. Well, it's just because they've rejected the basic premise, which is man is vile and evil and a sinner and needs a savior. And so to them, this is all foolishness. And this is just my opinion, but I, I'm thinking that part of it might be that uh, the gospel was just too simple for them because they liked, to, they liked to think about things that were real difficult and wrestle with all these difficult and, and strange issues. And the gospel was basically pretty simple. Man is evil and depraved and can't save himself and needs a savior. That's basically the gospel in a nutshell. And so the, the Greeks were... Um, it was foolishness to them, so they they just they rejected it out of hand as foolishness. Um, 
But he says in verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who will believe the basic premise that we are evil and need a savior, the power and wisdom of God leads us to salvation. Okay, verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, now it kind of gets into more talking about uh, God's plan versus man's plan here. The words foolishness and weakness in verse 25 are not words that mean personal foolishness and personal weakness. What they really mean is these are things where the ignorant view them as being foolish and weak. Clearly God is not foolish and God has no foolishness or no uh, weakness at all. Um, so when you read that, um, there was a, a preacher one time in Canada, this was many years ago, who put up a, uh, a um, billboard advertising what he was going to preach on. And it was, and he, it was called The Foolishness of God. And this is back in the days when, uh, uh, this is, I don't know exactly how many years ago, but they actually, a uh, local policeman came to, to talk to the man because it was blasphemy was against the law. And he, he put up on a billboard, the foolishness of God, which is what he was going to preach on. And they said, well, that's blasphemy. They didn't know their scripture very well. And he had to explain to them, it's right out of the scripture, and this is what it really means. But uh, So it, it doesn't mean that God has foolishness or weakness at all. It's just that people perceive it. The people that are rejecting the message perceive it. And uh, it's, it's through all that, these things are wiser than men. Um, if you flip, flip back to Isaiah 55, some pretty, uh, I think, scriptures that probably everybody's pretty familiar with. Uh, it was Isaiah 55, 6, a few verses. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For... My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are so much higher than ours. Um, someone has described philosophy, you know, this whole thing we talked about a minute ago, this man's philosophy and trying to figure out his you know, man's origins and all this. So, someone has described philosophy as a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. That's about as uh, intelligent as man's philosophy gets. Now, if you, you know, the scripture says that God's ways are higher than ours. Another example out of geometry, I was a math major, can't help it. Um, in, when in math and geometry, you talk about uh, two-dimensional things. Okay, this is a two-dimensional plane. And things are only in two directions, you know, length and width. That's all there is. If you assumed for a minute that you, could, that, that you and I lived in two dimensions, so we were inside this paper. Now, the, uh, the, the paper really has no width at all in, in, uh, in geometry. I don't know. I didn't make it up. just studied it. So assume you could, you could only live in two dimensions. So all you could do is see this way and this way. That's all you could see. Now suppose a, a creature, a creature, a being came along who was in three dimensions. And, you know, all you would ever see of that is, you know, if they stuck their finger 
assuming that you could stick it through the plane, they stuck it down here, you'd see sort of a cross-section of a finger. You probably wouldn't have any clue what it was, but that's all you could see. You, you would have no concept what this three-dimensional creature was like because all you could see is a very narrow slice, very narrow cross-section of, of what that three-dimensional being was. That's, that's an example, perhaps not a very good one, but that's an example of what it's like to be on this earth and to be human and to be trying to comprehend God's thoughts. Uh, and I, I don't mean to trivialize how far above us God is. Okay, that's, again, it's perhaps not a very good example, but it's trying to get us to think about God is so far above us, his thoughts are so high above us that we have a very difficult time understanding and can only understand what he will reveal to us and through his word and through his son. And uh, so when he says, oh, I've got to get back to 1 Corinthians. When he talks about the foolishness of God and the weakness of God being uh, wiser and stronger than men, that's really, we can only say it in words. It's such an understatement. God is so far beyond us. And so given that, we have to be sometimes, be very careful. This is just sort of a, an aside here, but I think, have you ever been reading the scripture and, and something and you said, well, that doesn't make any sense, or somebody's explaining something about the scripture and you say, that doesn't make any sense. I think as Christians, we need to be very careful when we say, that doesn't make any sense. Because in our finite minds, sometimes the things of scripture are so far beyond us it, it may clearly be God's word, and it may clearly be the truth, but we just can't grasp it yet. He, he's bringing us there, but we're not there yet. Now, it could be because it's foolishness, too. Don't get me wrong. Not everything that everybody says about the Scripture is true. So, again, it gets back to the whole logic argument. What, where is the argument coming from? If somebody's arguing from the truth of Scriptures and moving on to the truth of Scriptures, and it's something that the Scriptures very clearly say, if we can't understand it, we got to be careful to say that doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense because I'm not grasping it right at the moment. This is the truth because the scripture says it. Now, it could also be over here where somebody's just saying blithering foolishness about the scriptures because it's not the truth, but that's a whole other issue. So we have to be careful when, uh, when we are approaching scriptures. If something doesn't make sense, it can still be the truth and we just don't quite get it yet. Man's wisdom tries to figure out what people need, but man has never and never would have ever reasoned out from logic the need for a savior. And so that, you know, that's kind of what it's talking about here. God's plan is so much higher than man's thoughts. We never ever would have figured out the need for a savior the way God, the way God did it. Um, now we look down in verse 26. It says, for you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Um, actually, the words are called at the end of that verse. Mine has them there in italics. It means it's not really there. It's just implied. So that's just kind of an aside. But uh, he says, all right, you, he's writing to believers. He's telling them, you see, you see your calling to God. You've responded to this calling of God, but not many people that are considered wise by worldly standards were called. Now, I believe he's saying to them as part of the church now, then, and also I think it's in, you know, since it's written to, to Christians everywhere, it's to all of us. He's saying not many worldly wise men are called. And 
when the word says called here, it, it really means not just called, because God is calling everyone, I believe. This means called and having responded to the message. So again, it's to Christians that have responded to and given their heart to Christ. There's not very many wise people, not very many mighty. The word mighty means people that are powerful, able, strong, especially mighty in worth, wealth, and influence. These are influential people in the world. Um, not many noble. That word actually means of noble birth, well-born. The English would probably call them blue bloods, people that are born nobility or born um, of a um, of, of a very high rank in in life. Someone has said God tends to major in average people. How does that make you feel? Here we are. God majors in average people from the world's view. Okay, this is from the world's view. Those who are viewed as worldly wise, very wise people, or noble, or um, uh, influential, really tend to not respond to the gospel that much. Now, yes, there are celebrities that respond to the gospel. Um, you know, you're our heroes that we worship in sports and other things. But in my mind, when I see that, it doesn't generally work out very well. It doesn't seem to me that it works out very well. But in some cases, it does. If you look at the 12 disciples, they were fishermen, tax collectors, Galilean peasants. Um, Judas was really the only one that would be considered a gentleman of the whole bunch, and he was the traitor. Um, they were from the lower walks of life. The, the first 12, the 12 apostles, they were from the lower walks of life. And the, the church, the New Testament church, the ones that responded, tended to be from the lower walks of life. Interesting. goes on in 27 to say then, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Once again, the words foolish and weak here is not meaning to say that we are all, all Christians are foolish and weak. It's we are perceived at, by the world as being foolish and weak people. But God has chosen these things to confound, to humiliate, to shame, to dishonor the world. In God's, in God's economy, it's the things, that, you know, man's wisdom um, is shown up to be foolishness and will be eventually. Now, we gave some examples last week of some, some things that have happened throughout history that where it's been clearly shown that it was just foolishness. That doesn't always happen immediately right now, today. Um, there's a bunch of people out there who think they're very wise and smart and, and Christians are fools and idiots. And uh, eventually, you know, God's wisdom will win out and they will know. They may not know now. Again, these refers to the wise, the worldly wise we're talking about here, and the mighty are, again, those who are wield great influence. And when he says, verse 28, and the base things of the world, the world base means very lowly, insignificant, of low social standing, of low birth, of no reputation, of no account. Um, that's the, these are the people and the things that God uses. He says the despised things, God hath chosen, and the, yea, the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. The things that are despised are the things that the world treats with contempt and ridicule. Okay, these are the things that God chooses. Well, what's the purpose? He says right here in verse 29 through 31, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So this is, that word glory there 
could be translate boast. That word means to boast or to brag. Uh, that no flesh can glory in itself. Um, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, or he that's going to boast, let him boast in the Lord. Now, the word boast that's used here, it could be proper boasting or improper boasting. Again, like, like we said before, that word wisdom is the same word, but it implies either worldly wisdom or godly wisdom, depending upon the context. Here, this boasting could be good or bad, depending upon what you're boasting in. If you're boasting in yourself and your own strength, then, uh, uh, then that's not a good thing. Boasting in the Lord, if you are walking in the Lord, um, if you turn, uh, we're not going to turn there now, but Romans, I believe it's Romans 2. Hang on one second. I can look at it sometime later. Where is it? Sorry, it's in this one. Romans chapter 2. Yeah, Romans 2, where it, it talked about how the Jews were boasting in God, and yet they were rejecting him. They were disobeying him. So they, they were kind of an arrogant boasting. You know, we're the chosen people. You know, we're the one of God. And yet they were not walking after God. That's, that's not a good kind of boasting. But the kind of boasting that Paul talked about, where he boasts in the Lord. Only what the Lord has done is, is what he can boast into. Most about, excuse me. Um, if you flip back to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it talks uh, a verse, I think an extremely interesting verse about the, the disciples, the initial disciples. Acts 4.13 Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now that is the reason, I think. If God had used wealthy and powerful people, then men, we would have very naturally attributed this, all whatever happened to the flesh. They're good. These guys are rich and they're good and they're smart and all that. But that's not what it was about. It's about so clearly trying to show that, and that's how our lives should show forth. People should say, boy, that Pat Christensen's not much, but he's been with Jesus. Hopefully, I don't know if anybody's ever said that, probably not, but... Um, that would be, that, that's what we're after. Okay, why, why should we boast in God? Well, the answers are also given here in 1 Corinthians, in verse 30. It says, but of him we are in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And the idea of the way this is written in, in, the, uh, in the Greek is that this isn't four things that he is. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's really one thing. It's wisdom. That's the primary thing. And these three other things are more detail, more clarification about wisdom. That Christ uh, has been made through God. He's been made unto us wisdom. And he has become our righteousness uh, sanctification and redemption. Now, the uh, this righteousness, one of the definitions I looked up says, this is a forensic righteousness. So, being the intelligent person that I am, I immediately got my dictionary out and looked up what's forensic. 
Um, I always hear those words when you watch the cop shows, you know, talk about forensics and stuff, but it, it just means pertaining to a court of law. Or a forensic righteousness would be that which declares a man innocent even though he may have actually committed the crime. For example, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> um, let's just assume, well, there are those who believe O.J. Simpson is actually guilty of the murders that he was acquitted of. But since the, the courts declare him not guilty, then in the eyes of the courts of the United States, he is not guilty of, the, of those crimes, whether he committed them or not. That's the idea of, of our, our forensic righteousness in Christ. We stand guilty before God. Now, there's no question that we stand guilty before God of, of our sin, but we are declared righteous because uh, the jury didn't know it. No, it's not because the jury didn't know what they were talking about. It's because God had mercy on us. So he has become this righteousness. The sanctification is just being set apart. Now, this could mean one of the, the when I looked up this word, it could mean, and bear with me for a minute, it could mean either positional sanctification or practical sanctification. Now, what that means is positional sanctification, again, is talking about us being set apart to God in Christ. That's talking about our righteousness in God. Um, so we're set apart to God. We are saved. We are righteous. But the practical part of sanctification and the being set apart is being, though, uh, being set apart from sin. This is an area that we're going to struggle with in life still. Um, Romans 6 says we're no longer slaves to sin, but Romans 7 talks about, Paul talks about this nature that is that everywhere, no matter where I turn, I, I see that sin is still with me. Uh, we still have a, uh, a nature that is with us that, that will sin. Now, there are those who would uh, take exception with what I just said about having a sin nature. They say, if you blame it on a sin nature, then the tendency is to not take responsibility for it. So if I use the word sin nature, I'm still telling you and me that we are responsible for our own sin. We make the choices to sin, and we can choose not to sin or to sin. So I'm not blaming it on some mystical nature that you can't help yourself. Um, that is not the truth, and that's not what teacher, script, teacher scriptures. Scripture teaches. That's easy for me to say. Um, okay. So the sanctification, it says the righteousness enables one to stand before God in the court of divine justice. That's what we said before. We stand clean before God in the court. While sanctification equips one to serve him in the temple of divine service. This basically says now we can go out and live our lives for God and be set apart from sin. So he's become righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And the use of the word here means the final redemption of the body, a glorified body that we're going to have in heaven. So this is all good news here, this righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is why we should boast in the Lord. We have absolutely no, and I, this is not rocket science, and so I'm not saying anything that you don't know already, but uh, we have absolutely no, nothing in ourselves to boast about. We can only boast in the Lord, and that's what, and that's what it says here. So we should be boasting. That's, and that's the reason why God chooses the foolish and the weak things of the world. Foolish message, the foolish and weak people and things. And again, foolishness as perceived by the world. You just don't get it. Now, and, you, and you and I didn't get it when we were there also. And uh, we didn't get it because we just suddenly got smart enough. God had mercy on us and he revealed himself to us. And... Uh, 
And, and again, that's why we gather for the remembrance service, and we should continually remember. So, so what? So why did Paul write this here? What difference does it make? I, I think it's clear that the purpose was not for us to be arrogant about how, well, ain't we great? We, we decided where, the, you know, where the, the good stuff was, and we got over there. And uh, these other stupid people are still stuck in the world. It's not that at all. Um, but like I said last week, I think, uh, you know, you look at the scripture and say, what, why, why did he write this? What, what really is the purpose? Why should I care today about what he wrote in the scripture? And so I guess I ask a similar question to what I asked last week to, to you and to me. Um, what are we boasting in? You, know, you can think about that. Ask God to reveal to us what, what are the things that we are boasting in in our lives? Are we relying on our own righteousness? Or maybe we're boasting in our children? Or maybe we're boasting in our gifts that God has given? Or our wisdom? Or our self-confidence? You know, you know, the world is out there. Everything in the world is about building up your self-esteem and your self-confidence. And boy, you know, if you don't blow your own horn, nobody's going to blow it for you. So you better get out there and you know, be aggressive and stand up for yourself and uh, make something of yourself. That's what the whole world is all about, is that like it or not, we can get and do get sucked into the world in very ways that we just don't even realize. Are we boasting in our own plans or our own intelligence or our own perceived intelligence? Um, I think that he wanted to put this here to very clearly show us again that we have absolutely nothing to boast in. And there's absolutely nothing that we have that we should be relying on except in Christ. And so I guess um, where that gets me is, I, I didn't know how to end it in any other brilliant way other than where I was last week, is, uh, okay, what, what are we really trusting in? Like Jerry started out the, today, the song we sang, God and God alone. He is the only one that is fit to take the throne. He is the only one that has uh, uh, the, the wise plan of salvation that he's laid out for us. And uh, Paul has very clearly told the Corinthians that. Okay, you got to get this. This is what you got to get right up front if you're going to approach all the rest of the problems I'm going to have to deal with. And if you're going to approach the rest of your life, you got to get it up front. So if, uh, I guess if the Lord brings it to your attention, you know, pray and think about, you know, what, what are the areas of life that, that you and I might be boasting in? What, are we, what, are we, what might we be relying on, maybe even for our salvation? You know, I don't really know. You know, I can't get up here and tell each one of you that you're saved. That's not my position to say. Um, the scripture can show you whether you're truly saved or not. What, what are you truly relying on uh, for salvation? Uh, what are you truly relying on to get through life? Are we really relying on the Lord? We should be boasting and glorying in the Lord only. Those are the kind of questions to, uh, to seek after. I, I, I'm, it's been said before, and I believe that it is not God's intent that we should ever be introspective. And by that, I mean you know, examining ourselves and trying to figure out all ourselves. Oh, God, what exactly are my motives? And what you, you can drive yourself nuts doing that. I think... What God really wants us to do is to, like Keith said, to spend that some time and quietly before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to show us those areas of life. Because we, even in our own minds, we can't figure it all out. 
We need to have God show it to us. So I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on everybody to have you go home now and say, oh, I'm going to try to figure out all this stuff. But just spend some time and ask God and and ask the Holy Spirit to, to show us, each of us, what are we really boasting in? What are we really trusting in? And maybe we can just be drawn just a little bit closer to the Lord. Let's pray.